Now then. Hey up. Everyone alright? I'm alright. You're always alright. Episode 21. Welcome to Terrifying and Twisted. I'm Carla. I'm Phil. Hopefully you already know that by now. Everyone had a good fortnight? Getting back into routine of school? I've just been thinking, as a parent, hopefully it's not just us, but does it just feel like you're constantly buying clothes for your kids? Bit time just... you've bought them, they've fucking grown out of them. They just don't stop growing, other. <laughs> and we've got one that's at an age that is all Nike, nothing else, and black. Yeah. Nothing else. We've got a girl that's ten that's just figuring out what style she's at. <laughs> so that's been fun. And, and then, our, our child just doesn't give a fuck, does it? No, really don't give a fuck. As long as it's what he wants to wear, he ain't bothered. So we hope you're alright. Welcome back. Um, as TV recommendations this time, uh, first one is a series called Wolf on Sky Max. Yeah. It's about uh, seeing a crime investigator. Not much else to say, but it is worth a watch. To me, if you like Sherlock yeah. and Prodigal Son, and what were the other one I was thinking of? It's very similar in terms of yeah. of that sort of show. Yeah. Um, it's got quite a few comedy bits in, hasn't it? Yeah, it's good. We were saying, could you imagine being that, just that fucking smart? <laughs> like trying to have a conversation with a regular person. We've got Manhunt Night Stalker on ITV, <laughs> four episodes. How we didn't fucking know about that. Which just goes to show... There's the best thing about true crime is you're always finding out... You're never going to run out. And it's <laughs> mad to think that the UK had their own Night Stalker. Yeah, because obviously the Night Stalker is a very well-known yeah. case, but not the one we watched. No. It were, it were crazy. And then, I don't know if we did... I said it on last podcast, I don't think we did, but it was the... The film Help on Channel 4. Oh my god. With Stephen Graham and Jodie Comer. We love both of them anyway, don't we? Yeah. If you haven't seen Jodie Comer in oh. Killing Eve, watch it because it's really good. Wow. She's uh, She showcases just how brilliant she is with that, don't she? Yeah. So, what did you think of uh, Help? It were hard for me because we were sat together watching it and I could have cried on so many points. But if you remember, there were a part where Stephen Graham did something and I just said to you... Yeah, so it's about the COVID-19 outbreak. It's it's about a care home during COVID-19 and just how much we all struggled because they did massively. So we'll leave it at that and uh, hopefully make your own mind up. Yeah. Anyone that worked through COVID in a care home or as a support worker in hospital, anything, they will watch that with a different view someone like me yeah yeah um it is brilliant so definitely watch that and then last we've got fred and rose west 
Oh, reopened. Wow. On ITV. Wow. If you know about Fred and Rose West case, which a lot of people will know, please watch the reopened because, as usual, you sort of look at something that you've already watched and you There's think, so... oh, I, I know it all. Yeah. But you don't, so watch it. <laughs> I remember when it were advertised and people um, started putting on that they were watching it on Facebook. I remember actually thinking, is there anything else to know about this case? Like, if you remember, actually, when we first started this podcast, that's when they started digging the cafe up. Yeah. Because we spoke about it. Yeah. So when this were advertised, I thought, there's going to be nothing that we don't fucking already know. If you remember, Lee, we even said, and Lee pulled a face like, Fred and Rose West... And we're like, no, watch it, mate. Watch it. You think you know it all, but watch it. So that's a really good watch. And that's it for this week. Can I just say, as well, on our social media, that um, we ended up with inboxes about that. So thank you <laughs> for people actually getting involved and commenting and messaging and stuff. Because well, that's what we we're trying like to do. We like to you. know you there. Yeah, we do. So I'll crack straight on because I've actually got two cases this week. I've got a really short case and then my main case. Okay. okay. My first case is a request from Nat Dobson. She's a family friend, so shout out to Nat. Hello, Nat. Thanks for your recommendation. So this one's for you, Cocker. We're talking about a man called Daniel Thompson. He's 28 and he's local to Barnsley. Okay. So for anyone that doesn't know us, we're a Yorkshire couple and Barnsley is about 13 miles away from us, so it's not far. There's very limited info on this case, but I've got enough for you to yep. water on and get, you know, what happens. So Daniel had an active criminal record. He served two years in 1997 for GBH. At this current time, he had a girlfriend called Colleen Oliver. And the relationship were a bit, a bit rocky, a yeah. bit violent, a bit, what's the word? Toxic. A bit, a bit toxic, that were it. So Colleen and Daniel live together and three weeks before this event, he leaves Colleen and he gets himself a new girlfriend. Right. So we come to evening of 8th of July, 2001, and Colleen's drinking in her house with her friend Shane Collier. And I think they get a bit drunk, she goes to bed Shane passes out on sofa. Uh, the alleged were taking sleeping tablets as well. Um, I didn't know if he take if he were taking them to get off his nut or he were taking them because he needs them like me. Yeah. So Daniel returns to this address at five a.m. Pissed. So it's not a good mixture. I not think to find another man on sofa either. From what I gather, Daniel did actually know Shane. Right. Okay. So he's seen Shane on the sofa and he's kicked through the back kitchen door. And he attacks Shane. As this is happening, Colleen phones the police station and says that she's had a kitchen door booted in by her ex-boyfriend. Daniel eats him over Ed with the ashtray and using a knife, he stabs him through the heart. Then he goes upstairs and tells Colleen and the kids what he's done. Oh, so kids were in the house as well? Yep. Wow. So at this point, Shane is dying on the sofa. Now, the police turn up and Colleen tells the police that Daniel's left and they want no trouble. So as Shane's dying on the sofa... She covers up for him. Yes. So 
Later that day, Daniel sends Colleen and the kids on a day out to Blackpool. And then he progresses to dismember Shane's body into eight pieces. Fucking hell. He wraps him and puts him in boot at a car. Then he goes to meet Colleen and the kids in Blackpool. Like nothing's happened. Well, he's got a dismembered body in the back of his car. <sighs> Two days later, he buries Shane's body in two shallow graves. Now, I don't know exactly what investigation went down. Like I said, there's limited information. Yeah. But Shane's body gets found on 17th of March 2002. So we're talking 8th of July it happens. Yeah. In March 2002, the following year, he gets found. Don't know if they found some evidence to lead, but he gets found. So Daniel Thompson was found guilty of murdering a 21-year-old, uh, Shane Collier. At the trial, he said that Colleen had done it and he just buried Shane under distress okay. and orders from Colleen. So evidence reveals that he's violent, violent, extremely violent to her kids. He put Colleen in hospital a few times and obviously she's frightened to death of him. Yeah. The prosecutor said that Colleen and the kids have been conditioned to comply, to tell lies, to cover yeah, from yeah. him. And that's obviously why nothing got done until they actually found the body. Yeah. I don't know if anyone reported him missing. Like I said, very lim- uh, very limited information. The witnesses were actually the eight-year-old, the nine-year-old, and the 11-year-old who recounted the night, obviously, as he came up the stairs and said, look what I've done. Yeah. So July 2nd, 2002, he was sentenced to life, and Colleen was found guilty of assisting an offender. She got 12 months in prison, suspended. 12 months the prosecution obviously tried saying that Colleen had helped him she'd burnt his clothes she'd cleaned up but this woman were also absolutely terrified but the judge also accepted that yeah so that's that wow cut him up into pieces buried his body yeah do you know it always baffles me when people that kill decide to then go on and dismember them because it must take a lot of work that I'd have, I'd have to get off my nut do you reckon just get completely off your tits yeah uh, then just block it out <laughs> I'd have to take about 15 ecstasy tablets shut up <laughs> <laughs> right so my main case this week these are dubbed Ireland's Scissor Sisters right not the band <laughs> I don't feel like dancing <laughs> So, I'll take you to 30th March 2005, the Royal Canal in Dublin, and a passerby sees something in the water. What could it be? I'm assuming it's going to be a body. And I once found a body in a canal. No, no, right? Let's get this right. You genuinely shit me up doing this. (laughs) Get us a message whilst you're at work telling me that you found a body. Were it not in York Canal? Yeah. Dickhead. It were a blow up doll. But anyway. Do you know what? I'm sure I've still got that photo. <laughs> uh, and it's a, a decaying leg with a sock on. So, 10 days before 20th of March 2005. This is the day before Charlotte Mulhall's birthday, 22nd birthday. So she's the first person. Scissor sisters. Uh, her mother Kathleen had phoned to meet in local town with her sister, Linda Mulhall, 
So you've got Linda and Charlotte are the sisters. Kathleen is the mother. Yeah. Uh, they lived together with her dad. Uh, Linda had four children. She, a few months before, had had her children taken away from her and put in care because her partner, Wayne Kinsella, had been sentenced for abusing her kids. I don't know much about that, but that's what I found out. Okay. So, obviously, Linda's not in a good place. She's on a bit of a downward spiral. Uh, she's taking heroin. She's drinking. Uh, they said that they said that she was sometimes drinking three bottles of vodka per day. That's a lot, isn't it? That's fucked up. So they jump on bus into town and they meet the mum Kathleen and her boyfriend Farah Sawala No is a Kenyan. So Farah is thirty-eight years old. Kathleen's forty-nine years old. I don't know actually why we always say their age. Who gives a fuck about their age? I don't know. <laughs> So they don't have much money, they're all on welfare, and obviously pubs can be expensive, so they go to off-licence, get a bottle of vodka, drink yeah. on the streets, doss about, and they head towards a spire in the town centre, and from what I'm guessing it's like a monument church kind of thing. And Charlotte pulls out a bag of V's. They're going to get off the red? Even though this allegedly is morning time, and she's got ten tablets. This apparently is typical behaviour for the sisters and the mum. Uh, Farah, at this point, had already been on a three-day bender and Farah could sometimes be aggressive, unpredictable. So they didn't give him a tablet. Right. They took one each. And then uh, over the next few hours, they took two more tablets each. So there's one left. So they decide to head home, obviously pissed and as high as a rocket. And they arrive at flat one 17 Richmond cottages near Ballybog to Kathleen and Farrah's flat now Kathleen had been married to John Mulhall for 30 years they'd had six children it had not been a great relationship John had been abusive both had issues with drinks and drugs and then Kathleen left John yeah. and now she's with Farrah Linda Charlotte and the four other siblings have been surrounded by drinks and drugs most of the life. Yeah. Not a very stable home. A lot of uh, the siblings all struggle with mental health. Not good. Linda had obviously been in abusive relationships as well. Charlotte had even turned sex work to feed her addictions. In 2002, Kathleen left John and she met Farah. Linda hated Farah. She blamed him for her parents' split. So back to the flat Kathleen thinks I know what I'll do with it last day I'll crush it up and I'll put it in Farrah's drink she apparently wanted to perk him up right okay even though he'd been on a three day bender and he'd been drinking for 12 hours straight but it were good vibes they were listening to Sean Paul <laughs> Sean Paul in my cousin then Sean Paul can't be Sean Paul so she spikes his drink over the next few hours, good vibes. And then Farris staggers over towards Linda on the sofa. He puts his arm around her and starts rubbing her leg. So Linda's like, what the fuck are you doing? Get off me. Farrah proceeds to try and touch, touch up her. his girlfriend's daughter. Right. In front of his girlfriend. And this is what he says to her. Now, this is what I'm going to say to you before we met, love. Oh, I dread to fucking think. Come on. We are two creatures of the night. 
fuck off. <laughs> that, I'd just be like, get, get, get your undies back on, mate. So, Farrah carries on. Kathleen and Charlotte are shouting at him. And apparently, he says, you look so much like your mummy. Still groping her, still trying to kiss her. Charlotte is more assertive than Linda, even though she's younger. And she tries to get a sister away from Farrah. Now, apparently Farrah has this crazed look in his eyes, saying that he was going to kill Kathleen, because Kathleen and Farrah are in an abusive relationship as well. So not only is it drink, it's physical as well. Yeah. It's just a repeated cycle, isn't it? Farrah been in Ireland since 1996. Uh, he's age 31. Claimed he were from Somalia and that his wife and kids were dead. Apparently that was bullshit. They're alive and Farah isn't even his real name. His real name is Shalalila. Shalala Said Salim. That ain't what it fucking probably is, but that's what I'm going with. He'd been in numerous relationships with teenagers, you know, younger than him. Ones with learning difficulties. He'd even got a girl pregnant. Well, let's be honest, he's an abusive piece of shit, isn't he? Yeah, he'd been reported loads of times to Garda. So, he's only ever going to go for women and girls that he can control. Abuse, threats of murder. He'd been involved in a previous murder investigation into 17-year-old Renee Murray in September 99, victim of a brutal attack. Farrow was in the area, but there was no solid evidence and the crime remains unsolved. So, like I said, Kathleen and Farrow are in an awful relationship, toxic relationship. He raped Kathleen, beat her up, put her in hospital. Mm. So, back to the flat again. As this is happening, Charlotte went to the kitchen and grabbed a Stanley knife. According to Charlotte, her mother Kathleen says, kill him for me. If you do, I'll be dead by end of the year. So Charlotte grabs his head, pulls it back and slits his throat. Wow. Farrah staggers into the bedroom. He's got a four inch deep cut across his throat. Staggers to the bedroom, he falls on the floor, bangs his head on frame, calling out for Katie, which is his nickname for Kathleen. Charlotte follows him into the bedroom. She slits his throat again to stop him yelling. And then Linda comes in with a hammer. Fucking hell. Screaming, raining down this hammer over his head. Both of them continued to attack him. Uh, he was stabbed 22 times. Linda pounded his head with his hammer to a point where it even put dints in the floor. So they stopped. I guess realisation it. Maybe they were on a come down of ecstasy and drink. They needed some more. I've no idea what they do. But both girls go in the room. And mother is sat there quietly. Never tried to stop him. Of course you didn't. Just let him crack on. They said that Kathleen allegedly asked, now how are you going to get rid of his body? And Charlotte and Kathleen came up with the idea to chop him up and put him in the canal. Linda and Charlotte dragged his body into the bathroom now this is a tiny bathroom so they have to prop him up in the shower cubicle and apparently they can't get his legs in like it's that small how the fuck they're gonna cut his body up i'll tell you so what they use is a stanley knife a hammer and a bread knife how oh fuck me 
and they do his entire body. Linda takes the lead in cutting this body up. It's said that how they did it is they put the bread knife underneath the arm or the leg and then hammer above to dismember. As you can imagine, there were blood everywhere and apparently it took all fucking night, which I'm sure it would be a bread knife. And an hammer. And a Stanley knife. Yeah. The worked fruit night. Fucking worked fruit night. (laughs) (laughs) Taking bone and flesh out at plug all. Once arms and legs were done, they decided we're going to take his head as well. So the cat idea. So Linda placed the towel over his head and continued to dislocate his neck with the hammer. And eventually she managed to decapitate him with this hammer. And then Linda grabs his cock and chops it off with a Stanley knife and says, now you'll never be able to rape my ma again. All this time, Kathleen sat in room watching telly. Got her feet up, got a collar on. She's absolutely fine, ain't she? <laughs> so the plan on saying Farrow ran off because they've got previous for it. Mm-hmm. They'd obviously discuss where they're going to dump the body. They, come, they thought about dumping the body in the rubbish, but it was still three days till bin day. Nobody could drive. Nobody had a car. Very limited options. So they call John Mulhall, which is the dad. So when the dad gets there, Farrah is already in black bags, in the hallway, piled up, ready to go. <laughs> well, so I think recycling. They obviously tell him what's happened John's left appalled and storms out Linda and Charlotte have cleaned everything tore up carpet from bedroom cleaned it from head to toe but as you and I know you can, you think you can clean something but really fucking blood gets it's everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> we, it does we watch time and time again so knock at door it's John again <clears throat> John comes back they've already got two siblings in prison already and he doesn't want to see his daughters go to prison as well. Okay. So he takes Farrah's clothes and the murder weapons and disposes of them. The girls put Farrah's body into gym bags and they walk to the Royal Canal. This Royal Just Canal... walking down the street with fucking body parts. In the daylight. This Royal Canal is three minutes away from the flat. Apparently water uh, only eight foot deep. They did it in daytime, took multiple trips. And <laughs> I'm sorry, right? And I know it's not funny, so I'm, I really don't mean any disrespect, but thick as fuck just comes to mind. These were mastermind killers. This has been but a we, build We also up. don't know how fucks they are. No, These, can they, you imagine? They could be thinking, oh, this is a great idea. Can you imagine, right? You must have so much anger. You've had, a, you've had all this abuse and toxic relationships all through your life your mum's got this new partner that's obviously now trying to grope his daughter her daughter in front of her and they're all absolutely off their fucking tits yeah like you said the fucking stabbed him and hit him with hammer that much and stopped and it was like really like it was like fuck what have we done so the whole disposing of him and stuff like that it's just they ain't got a clue what they're doing have they <laughs> they've obviously not watched very much they should have messaged the terrifying and twisted Facebook we page we developed yeah actually no we best not fucking say no. that <laughs> jokes 
<laughs> before any Karens jump on. So apparently later on, the guard are actually found CCTV of these two girls <laughs> dumping this body in the canal. Back and forth, back and forth. Also, what they didn't think to do was weigh down the bags. So they just let them float. They decided to bury Farrah's head elsewhere. I've no idea why, but they decided to, and they took it to Sean Walsh Memorial Park. They, mu- they must have been proper fucked because now reading this, so they decide to bury his head near a park bench. <laughs> why? And apparently it was in a shallow grave, and they didn't bury it properly. And did they do it in daylight as well? They must have done. They must have been fucking rushing or somewhere. How many fucking ease so, did these guys take? Linda became obsessed with it when they'd left, thinking, is the fucking head still out? We're going to get caught. Back to 30 from March 2005, police. Well, I'm not being funny, sorry, but if you take that many drugs and drink that much alcohol, you must be a paranoid person anyway. Could you imagine the paranoia from killing somebody... And getting rid of the body while you were off your tits? No, absolutely not. So, back to 30 from March 2005. Police are obviously searching this canal. There's press all over as they're doing this excavation. And allegedly, on some of the press photos, you can see Linda and Charlotte on the top of the bridge. Watching. Watching. <laughs> they examined his body. There were no defensive wounds. Obviously, he'd been in the water for 10 days. His skin was slipping off yeah there was no head so they can't ID him Kathleen and in this meantime had told everyone that Farrah had left she'd got landlord to move her flats because her flat had a cockroach problem so she ripped all the carpets up yeah of course she did <laughs> and now she's been moved that's a good idea so a week passed and they put up a £10,000 euro reward on a show called Crime Call, along with an island football top, which was with the body. Yeah. On the 16th of May, Mohammed Ali Abu Bakr reported his friend missing. Say that in last seen him with Kathleen and her kids in the town centre. So the police looked into it and... Farrah's bank cards hadn't been used since that day his phone were off so his friend couldn't understand why if he'd gone off somewhere he'd still be he'd answering. still be having his phone yeah. and he'd still use his bank he needs to live so it comes about that Farrah has a little boy to an Irish woman called Paula so when the police get in touch with her she has seen it on the news etc and she has a feeling is Farrah so she allows swabs from her six year old boy for the DNA and the DNA confirms that it is Farrah Kathleen denied not knowing anything about it she'd not spoken to him as far as she knew he just fucked off so 11th of July that year a call from Wheatfield Prison is 29 year old John Junior John Junior to John Mulhall and Kathleen yep and he tells the police that he knows all about it. His uh, mum had been visited and told him. He said that he reckons his mum had intentionally manipulated his sisters. To do it for her. To do it for him. 
Um, and that were from John Jr. and James. Uh, they were the two siblings that were serving time. Ten. Now, <laughs> I don't know if they got the €10,000 reward or they did it because they were genuinely disgusted at what had happened. They're inside. It could be all a plea to get themselves out earlier. Yeah. Uh, a side note, James Mulhall stabbed his girlfriend in 2012, Mary McNamee, 12 times, and she was in a coma for 10 days. <sighs> so, yeah, so they're not just in for a bit of glory and shit, are they? The next day, the police turn up at the flat. Only now the flat, in this time, has had two sets of tenants... It's obviously been redecorated, it's clean. Yeah. But, as we know, blood gets everywhere. So they still found blood underneath bathroom fittings, in the floorboard grooves. Yeah. They know where the victim is. They know where the scene of crime is. They've got the uh, the suspects. Still no head, still no cock. (laughs) Even though... Allegedly, on the 31st of March, the day after the body was found in the canal, an elderly man called the police and he said, I've got summer at this park here and it might be the head of that black fella from canal. So when the police turn up, it's not there because Linda had already got there. Oh, that's sure, and removed it. She'd seen, obviously, that they started dredging the canal became increasingly more paranoid uh, apparently she took it up into Dublin mountains and as she was taking it on the bus fuck off she was talking to the head apparently Linda had took this head in her son's school bag apparently her, her son went to school with a plastic bag for school that day because his mum needed his bag you need to use your bag love to put her fucking head in Apparently people had seen her on the bus talking to this bag. She went on to say that she couldn't get rid of the smell. She felt like she was suffocating. The smell of death, the smell of what she'd fucking done. I I dread to think, and I know we've said it before, but death really does have this smell that you just can't get rid of. Now, I've never... I've never being around somebody that's been dead and buried and dug back up and then taken on a bus but I've smelt someone that's died recently so I dread to think the fucking smell from that head Um, and in the meantime she'd tried to take an overdose because she what she was fucked I think it's coming apparent in here that the son's probably right and mum has manipulated this situation to get the result that she needed. Her dad apparently told us to confess, so two days later, she confesses. Charlotte denies it and blames Kathleen. Kathleen has fucked off to England. Like, no phone calls with girls that's what that's what i mean completely she's literally off. just manipulated situation to get the end goal that she needed charlotte finally confessed and they were both charged with murder the trial was in october 2006 and when the trial came about they both pleaded not guilty even though they confessed charlotte got a life sentence murder and linda was sentenced to 15 years for manslaughter 
in December 2005, John Mulhall couldn't live with himself and killed himself. Oh, wow. Kathleen returned to Ireland in February 2008 because she was going to be extradited and she was charged with concealing evidence and served five years. So that is the Scissor Sisters. But... Go on. Where's the fucking scissors? Why are they called Scissor Sisters? Just because of using knives yeah. and... Lazy journalism, I call that. Yes. Oh, well, sad lazy journalism, Philip. John Wayne Gacy's case. Really did, didn't it? Because he never killed in a Clapham outfit. That we know of. That we know of. Yeah. Lazy journalism. So... I hope you enjoyed it. I did. I and do when think... you look at the pictures, honestly, you, 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 you won't mess with them. They look a bit nuts. Don't they? Yeah. I love them. Well, we always have a look anyway. Um, no, I, I, do, I do think that that's just um, a bad, bad mixture of toxic relationships, abuse, Drugs, fucking drug use. Alcohol. Yeah, just a bad combination and it does sound like I'm not denying that he wasn't fucking vile but mother knew exactly what she was doing once she, she was playing it she, my, my daughters are in the bathroom cutting up my boyfriend's body and I've got my fucking feet up with watching fucking soaps it's yeah. fucked up fucked up so my case this week is the murder of Peter Ashton right so on the 4th of May 1989 Peter Ashton and Terry Ryan who were both 13 at the time they decided to meet up and sky school that day yeah boy can't do that shit now Philip <laughs> fuck me Joey don't turn he's five minutes late and we've got a message on his phone yeah um, so these two boys they'd not really been friends that long um, they, they met at Kingston State School and they live near each other in Marsden, Logan City, Australia. They became good friends. Now, Peter was this tall, lanky kid that wore these really thick rimmed glasses. Jam jar. Yeah. <laughs> so many people people were laughing of jam jar and frizzy <laughs> from last week. Um, which meant he got bullied quite a lot. So, him and Terry spent a lot of time skiving school. And they used to go shoplifting. I feel bad now for saying jam jam. <laughs> kids, kids can be fucking cruel, can't they? Yeah. Um, Peter was planning on hitchhiking from Marsden to Melbourne, which is about an 18-hour drive. Terry said to him, I'm going to come with you, but only up till go coast. And then I'm going to turn around and go home. But Peter wanted to carry on because he wanted to go see his older brother. So at half eight that morning, far from me, they decide to go to a nearby lake. They played in park for a little bit. They then decided to go to Kingston train station and got the train to Brunswick in Brisbane. They then went on a shoplifting spree, um, basically kitting the Sems out in new jeans, jackets. Oh, a full so, spree. Oh, yeah, full spree. Fucking hell, are you sending chewing gum from pound stretcher and that were it oh no these are bad boys they uh, literally got brand new outfits shoes all sorts so they then got a train to Woolridge which they then decided to go to a Walmart and start shoplifting for six and booze so again 
they got back on a train and headed to Beanley. By this point, it were early afternoon, so they decided to head down Gold Coast Highway to start hitchhiking. When they were walking, they came across this man who were pulled over at Side at Road, had his bonnet up, fixing his car. That old chestnut. Uh, that old chestnut. Um, he were a young-looking lad, and there were another man in car um, that were older than him. They asked if they could hitchhike. Said, yeah, no problem. So Peter jumped in front, Terry got him back. As soon as they set off, the older man in the back put a gun to Terry's head, telling him that if you move, I'm going to shoot you. So after a short drive, they decide to pull up at Side at Road. They then handcuff both boys. They set back off driving, telling the kids that there were police. So when kids started questioning him and like trying to make light conversation, they just constantly tell him it was none of their business, that they kept hitting him with gun, telling him that if they carry on that they'll kill them. So both men started repeatedly taking it in turns to hit Peter whilst they were sat in front, hitting him round the face with shotgun and just continuously punching him. They drove the boys over the New South Wales border into the town of Kingscliff. I wonder why why him and not both? Yeah. This, that question will stay unanswered. Right. Because it's so bizarre. Um, so the, the go to this little town um, called Kingscliff, they told the boys that they've used this place many times before and if they comply, they'll let them go because they've let other victims go. So the parked car got Peter out, put these thumb cuffs around his toes, then they got Terry out, chucked him on floor and started kicking him with steel toe cap boots on. While Terry were on floor, they then went back to Peter, they beat him, they sexually assaulted him, they burnt him with six, they hit him in the jaw with a shotgun so hard that the barrel broke in two. They had so air- imagine what it's done to his fucking jaw. They had an aerosol can with them, so they started using it with a lighter as a flamethrower. Fucking hell. They then got a leather punch and punched multiple holes into his ears. They then slit his throat and stabbed him through the head. Wow. But what they did is they basically inflicted the most possible pain without actually killing him, making him suffer, basically. Yeah. They then made Terry suck Peter's genitals. While they were dead? He's not dead. Even though he's been stabbed in the head? Yeah, he's not dead. Right. He's suffering really bad, but he's alive. So they make Terry suck his genitals they make him heat his pubic hair. The the older man cut Peter's pubic hair off and rammed it down Terry's throat. Fucking hell. After all this, I don't know how, but Peter managed to get the toe cuffs off. So he's been stabbed in the head, he's had his throat cut. Adrenaline. Yeah. It always reminds me, I'll never ever forget that case that you told me of the girl. Mary. Yeah. Mary Vincent. Mary Vincent and dragging herself if you don't know about that case, go check out our Mary Vincent case. I think it's one of the earlier ones yeah. we did, but it is unbelievable. So enough about that, but that's what it always reminds me of. It's that sort of adrenaline, isn't it? So It's amazing what people can do, really. To survive. So he managed to get these toe cuffs off and tried to make a run for it, but he soon got caught. They put them back on, basically laughing at him, pushed him to the floor, saying, let's see if you can run away now. Peter, again, managed to get him off and then tried to make another run for it. How old is this kid? 13. Wow. Both boys are 13. So, at this point, the older man took out a shovel from car, 
and started it in him round Ebb. This boy's not going to take much more, is he? No. Even making Terry hit him round Ed, involving him in it. So Terry actually said that he tried to do it as softly as he could, but he knew that he had to sort of do what he could to try and stay alive. So these would never be able to do this to anybody else. Yeah. Um, what an awful position for to, that young lad. Yeah. So they then started digging a grave for Peter and they said to Terry, we're going to stand and watch you do it. That's the only way we can trust you. So obviously Terry digs this grave, knowing that they're going to put his fucking friend in it. And um, thinking, what are they going to do to me? So they then put Peter's body in this grave, started putting sand back over him and he were alive. They then got back in the car. They planned to drive back through Gold Coast and back to Brisbane. They stopped at a place called Faux Park, got rid of a few bits of evidence, like including Peter's clothes. They then went and used public toilets to wash any blood off themselves. They then got back in the car, asked Terry, where do you live? We'll drop you at home. So Terry told him exactly where he lived, which really, I can imagine just how much shock that boy must have been in. Well, you see, the thing is, when they said, drop us off, uh, tell us where you live, going to drop you off. Do you tell them the right address because you believe them and you think they're going to drop you off at home? Do you tell them the wrong address? And hope that they don't find out. Because if they drop you off there... They know where you live. They know where you live. Yeah, that's what I mean. But he's 13 and he was in shock, so he didn't think of that. So he did tell them where he lived and they actually drove him right up to his door. The then the men then both got out, shook Terry's hand, and told him, "If you ever tell anybody, we'll come and do the same to you." It's just so bizarre how, from the beginning, they pick these two kids up. Terry's had a pasting as well, but they've just targeted this one lad throughout. Through, yeah, done everything they can to him, and then in last kicking notes, we'll fucking bury him alive, and then what we'll do is. Well, let this kid go. Even though you've done them unspeakable things to someone else, you can then switch off and then go, oh, it's all right, you'll get yourself off, lad. See, see you later, old cop. Yeah. Obviously, Terry ran straight into house and told his mum everything. Once she'd sort of made sense of it all, it was early hours of the 5th of May. She took him to the police station, where again he told police everything. At quarter to five... Detectives from the Beanley Police Station drove Terry and his mum to Tweedshead Police Station where they were met by Senior Constable Mark Ferguson. Again, Terry had to tell him everything that had happened, it relayed how him and Peter were abducted, um, driven over at South New South Wales border um, and everything that they'd done. At first, yet again, he wasn't believed. They were very sceptical of it, of Terry. The biggest question was why would they kill him and let you go knowing that you've seen them you know it were always the at one point the police actually thought had terry and peter got into a fight if you remember we watched the series where not long back i can't remember what it was where a guy were kidnapping lasses and then he let one go and she went to the police Police. station and they didn't believe her didn't believe her yeah that's what i mean if someone walks in in such a clear state of shock yeah you know this kid is still 
he's got a beat in himself he's got blood on him why would you not believe him it's it's the same old bullshit of different times so eventually um, they drove Terry and his mum to the park they had a looking toilet checked bins couldn't find anything so this then just started backing up their theory that he were talking shit even more right so the police after that they then decide to drive him to Kingscliff where Terry said that all this had happened this remote place was actually a really popular fishing spot yeah so even though it was really really remote there were lots of people that come and yeah. went um, and it had loads of different sandy tracks leading in different directions they were well visited yeah Terry took police down one of these tracks saying this is where it happened but nothing on a quick search you know there were no blood on floor there were no shallow grave there were no un, you know freshly turned sand anything now this actually happened four times down four different tracks and by this point Terry were getting really fucking frustrated because he knew it had happened here he knew his friend he knew his friend were buried somewhere there he'd gone through this horrific abuse it must have been so much fucking so much frustration yeah well the police actually said that that's the only thing that led him to believe that his story were real his reactions yeah because they found no evidence in bins none in toilets four tracks nothing so they decide to go down this last fifth track um but as soon as they went down terry were walking with them and his reaction he just basically fell to his knee and he just knew it was like this is the track yeah. so apparently they only walked about 200 meters down um and there's this clear opening and straight away they start looking around and they see like the dirt mound it's already it's got wet blood around it they found a knife a sock chewed up matchsticks um, obviously they got a forensic team down investigation team they came from North Rivers straight away and they removed Peter's naked body from the grave it was clear to see that nearly every single inch of that boy's body had been abused abused in some way. pain inflicted what I've got to say is Terry well fucking done lad well fucking now, done mate it's not often I put out a warning before I tell you details but I'm going to tell you what the post-mortem revealed so I'm going to put a warning out if anybody is a bit squeamish or don't skip this bit yeah so the post-mortem revealed that Peter had been stabbed more than 30 times he had multiple lacerations to his head his hair had been cut he had bruising to the head and face a fractured skull which had caused brain damage leather punch wounds to his ears he had a partial dislocation and multiple fractures to his spine there was a large stab wound to the right of his throat and his jugular vein and arteries had been severed there were sig burns to the front of his chest more stab wounds to the left shoulder stomach both legs and even under his toes he had severe bruising to his wrists his bum scrotum and penis Kiddo. he also had hair missing from his pubic area 
he had shallow lacerations all over including 15 more stab wounds and 14 separate bruises sand was found in his mouth throat and nose from inhaling it whilst being buried alive dr john folland who performed the autopsy said that peter's cause of death was likely asphyxiation from being buried alive fucking hell now they're just completely destroyed him aren't they yeah in front of his in front of his fucking friend at 13 after peter's body were recovered and terry had, had time to come over at shock he sat down with police told them everything that had happened um, and this is when he gave them some details that he'd picked up he said that the men were driving a yellow four-wheel drive day Ayatsu, and so you know it's a yellow fucking four before it's going to stick out in it yeah not very not many people have yellow cars no he also told them that their name were their names were bob and paul uh, paul was the younger one and he was able able to give detailed descriptions of these men when the men drove terry back home they made a few stops like i said to get rid of evidence and stuff so they threw peter's glasses in a bin off griffith street they threw his hat off a bridge on the gold coast highway and at folks park they got rid of a shirt and sock obviously the police went and checked but they didn't find anything because the bins had been emptied that morning so the police spent seven hours searching through twenty-five thousand tons of rubbish wow to retrieve this shirt and sock which they did fucking good on them they disposed of the shovel and gun which they'd pulled apart and thrown in bushland which the police also recovered so now it was basically a massive manhunt for these men police made appeal to public giving details of the car the next day they received a phone call saying that they believed these two men were soldiers at the Inrigral army camp and they were believed to be 34 year old robin reed and 17 year old paul luckman please decide to go to the camp search the dorm they find over 30 knives they find scalpels swords books with male bondage satanism and also a devil's bible they also find a photo album and this photo album was filled to the brim with different hair samples which each hair sample had a name and it also either had pubic under arm or groin written above it a notebook mementos mm-hmm. a notebook was found that had an essay written in it about taking a young boy down a dirt track at knife point with his head in a headlock while undressing him so reed was a corporal and luckman was a new recruit the both had already left before the police got there they were told by the commander that there was another soldier named robert ponzetti him and his car were also missing the police put out the information about robert to public didn't actually know like if they were even together or if this robert were helping him or what now not long after this robert showed up at the tenterfield plate the tenterfield police station saying that he was abducted at knife point by two men 
and told him that they were the ones that killed that boy in Kingscliff. He said that in the early hours of the 6th of May, Reed and Luckman had gone into his room, woke him up, basically saying that Reed was poorly, he was sl- clutching his stomach, and he said that he had food poisoning. He asked if he could drive them to the hospital off camp. So obviously he agreed and said, yeah. Now, as soon as they were all in the car, Luckman pulled out a knife, put it to his throat. Reed put him in some handcuffs and shoved him into the back. They then nipped to their yellow four before, grabbed a few bits, chucked it in the boot. They then set off driving. They were driving for about 15 minutes. Both men started bragging about Peter's murder. They drove towards Tenderfield, told Robert, we'll drop you off, let you go. We won't hurt you as long as you don't do what Terry did. So, obviously, he meant tell anybody. Robert. Surely these two know they're going to get caught. It's like they want to get caught. So, Robert agreed, but as soon as they were out of sight, he ran straight into the police station telling them everything. The same day, the police got a call saying that they'd seen the car driving down New England Highway towards Deepwater. So, the police set up a roadblock with a sting and that's how they caught him so it wasn't no massive chase it weren't you know a big cat and mouse chase finding finding them they just got him at this roadblock got you bitch so obviously they were stopped and arrested and they were taken to be questioned now robin reed was born in england on the 20th of october 1948 to a good working class family they all emigrated to australia in november 61 and settled in Queensland. He joined the army in 72. Now, before these this crime with Peter, he had no criminal history, no awful or up, unstable upbringing. He was considered extremely smart with a high IQ. During his police interviews, he was described as cocky, but easy to interview. He would say things like, the voice told him to do it, but police believed it were him just trying to set up the basis for insanity defence later yeah he also tried to blame it all on lockman and at the end of the interview he looked down at a pen on the desk and said to a police officer you know i could kill you so easy with that i could just jam it through your ear and into your brain you little bastard cocky little dickhead now paul lockman didn't have best upbringing he was born on the first november 64 in melbourne into a broken home he didn't have much of a relationship with his parents or step-parents. He didn't actually meet his own mum until he was 13. She was an alcoholic and lived with an abusive partner. When he was 16, he left school. He started prostituting himself to earn some money. He also started cross-dressing from a young age. When he was 17, he joined army in an attempt to get some normality to his life. Three months later, he was transferred and that's where he met Robin Reed. So, Reed was in charge of allocating recruits to dorms. He arranged for Luckman to basically move in with him. Reed had a passion for weapons, violence, sexual torture, fantasies, and sat- Satanism. Sounds like it kind of groomed him, doesn't it? 100% groomed him. Luckman was so enticed that apparently the pair bonded extremely quickly, becoming inseparable. During Luckman's interview, he tried to pin it all on Reed. Although the evidence actually showed he caused more injuries to Peter than Reed did. After the interviews... It's like uh, 
is read the older one. Yeah. He morphed. Yeah. He groomed him he into designed him into what he wanted being to live as out. As him. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, after their interviews, another soldier came forward called Peter Oskins. Now he said that on the eighteenth of April he met up with both them men and they went for a few beers. After, soon conversation got into abduction and torture and Reed said how he'd like to do it to children but he wouldn't actually want to kill them he would like to see them suffering before them burying the body in a shallow grave so basically describing what had happened yeah. to Peter wasn't it the fucking creepy bastard he also took out a medical book showing like a picture of a human diagram and he'd point to where he'd want to cut his victims once he'd done all that, apparently he just sat back down and carried on like normal, drinking his pine, and then they all went to the cinema together. Like nothing... Had been said. Had been said like it was just normal. Now, just two days before Peter's murder, the men picked up a man called John Bruce from a nightclub. And when asked why they didn't kill John, Reed said, I still had control of my reality and emotions in relation to John. We still to abduct him and I thought we would terrorise him we set out to kill him but I couldn't and we let him go when we came to Peter it was getting stronger lack of sleep other things were building up within me and the fantasy had got me at this stage no you're just a fucking sitcom but there was no satisfaction within me when I set out to kill Peter bullshit yeah I call that as well so both men were charged with the murder of Peter Aston and the abduction of Terry and John. When they had the first interview after being charged, they both basically described in detail what had happened on day of murder. Reed was said to be extremely talkative and smiley during this. He seemed quite excited. And there's actually now a very infamous photo where Reed is actually sat on a pile of sand and that pile of sand is what was used to bury Peter. You and he's sat there smiling. You need to put that on. I will, that's what's going to be on. Because we always put pictures on, yeah. don't we, anyway? Um, so that's a really infamous photo now. The police spend five days retracing every single step, going to every single stop during and after the murder and they managed to locate so much evidence it was fucking unreal I've got to say even though I said kudos to Terry kudos to the fucking police, police as well yeah. because it, it seems like you know they're stuck with fucking Terry even though you know at first they didn't believe him and even though the search there and the search there they're stuck with him and they're adamant to get these fuckers nailed yeah hundred. and you know what the fact that these men disposed of so many different items in so many different places thinking they were clever which that is a smart move you know a lot of people do that if it weren't for Terry remembering every single place that they stopped at they wouldn't have got half as what they had done so the trial started on the 8th of November 1982 where Luckman pleaded not guilty and Reed pled not guilty by reason of insanity Neither men showed any emotion during trial 
and the judge actually decided against showing any photos of Peter and the injuries to the jury because it was so because it bad. was that bad. Yeah. Which that does not happen often. Yeah. Because that's one of your main parts of a case. Yeah. So for that to not be shown. Yeah. Um but yeah, it, it was that that bad. So he basically said he did not want the jury to carry them images with them for the rest of the life. On the twenty sixth of November eighty two both men were found guilty and sentenced to life in prison. The sentencing judge, Mr Justice Roden, said that this crime was the most brutal and sadistic crime he had ever seen in his 30 years. In prison, Paul Luckman basically sold favours to other inmates for exchange for money and drugs. In 98, he started an hormone treatment after a psychiatrist said that he was more of a woman than a man then in 1999 he became a she and had a full sex change operation okay changing her name to nicola louise pierce you'll still be the scummy bastard that killed a 30 year old you can change yourself as much as you want so on the 20th of october 93 she had her sentence redetermined to a maximum of 24 years with a minimum of 16. And in 1999, she was released from prison. Robin Reed is still in jail as of now. In 98, he applied for redetermination of his sentence, but he was refused. He then applied again and it was redetermined as life in prison with a non-parole period for at least 24 years he has applied numerous times for parole since then but thankfully every single time he has been denied so that is the case of peter ashton and that's a grim one yeah not nice not nice um hope you've enjoyed it hope it's been a good one for you we will be back in two weeks yeah and lastly oh what Carla, we are two creatures of the night. Fuck off. (laughs) That will not seduce me, Philip. See ya. Bye.